0: A lot of what passes for economic science is really just a protection racket for the rich.
1: So many things that we accept to be true and economists tell us are self-evident and widely shown to be true actually don't have an intellectual basis or a factual basis.
2: Bad theory leads to bad policy and bad policy leads to bad outcomes. You know, Nick, one of the things I love about this podcast is that we don't have ads. I never have to do an ad for some mattress or, uh, or some other product that I don't use. But what we do ask is for our, our listeners to uh, leave us a five-star review wherever you review our podcast. And we're asking you to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, The Pitch. It's free, just like the podcast. Uh, it's a weekly newsletter about the latest in progressive economics, and you can find a link in the show notes. Awesome. And today on Pitchfork Economics,
0: we get to talk to investigative journalist Tom Bergen about his new book, uh, Free Lunch Thinking, which is uh, a, basically a takedown of all of the economic principles that have steered us so wrong throughout the neoliberal era. And Tom's book does a really great job of sort of detailing the what and the who of all of this nonsense. It's, it's, it's pretty impressive.
2: And uh, there's so much in this book. We went a little longer on the interview, so why don't we just get right into it?
1: Okay. My name is Tom Bergen. I'm an investigative financial journalist. I work for the Reuters news agency, and I mainly focus on investigating corporate wrongdoing, tax avoidance, breaches of health and safety regulations and all kinds of nefarious activity that uh, big companies sometimes get up to. My latest book, Uh, Free Lunch Thinking, is taking some of those skills and experience of of scrutinizing companies and turning the focus onto the economics profession and examining whether the advice that we receive from economists really is as helpful as it uh, should be, or whether we should be scrutinizing that with the same degree of skepticism that uh, we do sometimes with some of our, our less socially responsible corporate citizens.
0: Well, Tom, uh, it seems like we're fellow travelers. Wonderful. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, we were really, uh, we saw the piece that you wrote and Looked at your book and we're really taken by the arguments you you make because we agree with you emphatically that a lot of what passes for economic science is really just a protection racket for the rich. You know, it's a bunch of made up ideas that advantage a small group of people at the tippy top and disadvantage almost everyone else. And it all passes for itself off as science. So uh, I guess
1: m- my question is, what started you on your journey? Um, well, yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting because it's, it's for me, it's it's a it's a deviation from what I usually do. Um, I, as I said, I usually look at uh, big companies, maybe governments, and oligarchs and people like that. My focus on economics really grew out of my day-to-day reporting, where and one of the big areas was around uh, taxation. I started to, to report upon. It's an investigation about Starbucks tax planning here in the UK that led to a lot of you know changes and investigations here in the UK and what's interesting when you look cover that issue you kind of realize well why why are the, the tax laws devised in a way that allowed Companies to, to avoid paying tax. In that case, it turned out, you know, you know I met government ministers, spoke to people about it, and they said, well, look, you know, the theory shows that this corporate taxation is a bad idea anyway because it, it saps investment. That got me thinking about, well, is, is that really true? You know, because I spent a lot of time talking to companies as well. And some of these things, I you know, theory doesn't necessarily align with what I, I seem to appear to see companies doing. I also have covered a uh, report a lot about. Uh, regulation and the way in which big companies can game the rules. With respect to regulation, I mean, I, I've heard a lot of policymakers talking about how the uh, in regulation impose a lot of costs on business. But you know, I've spent months covering the BP oil spill, where we had a situation there where a flexible approach to regulation contributed to a company losing $70 billion. Uh, so the you know, that didn't seem to be a situation where investors might have been hurt by stronger regulation. So, my interest in in this subject really stemmed from seeing how the economic theories are applied and impact people and companies on the ground. And when I approached this, I I did it, you know, the way that I typically do with an investigation is, well, let's start at the beginning and, and what do we know? And in a way, that was one of the most interesting and in some ways entertaining uh, aspects of of researching the book was to find that so many things that we accept to be true and economists tell us are self-evident and widely shown to be true actually don't have an intellectual basis or, or a factual basis. And time and time again, I mean, in the book, one of the areas I really dissect on this is around the minimum wage. And one of the really interesting things about that was the way in which the economic establishment kept on saying there was a body of evidence that showed the minimum wage killed jobs when there just wasn't. And, I, and I'm not just saying that my assessment of that, but the, the, the key 1983 report that they all focused on and said, this shows that specifically said we don't have enough evidence to show the um (laughs) the the minimum wage kills jobs no they were all relying
0: on the models you know the pareto optimality of the equilibrium system and you know like it wasn't was it 94 when card and krueger did the
1: first actual empirical uh check It's just, yeah, and they were they were treated with, uh, with just total disdain by the establishment you had like right. people like Becker Gary Becker going out and Becker was one of these people claiming look this has been shown for years and you're thinking Gary where is which studies are you talking about here? yeah I mean so card and Kruger had a gag they used to call the, the body of evidence that existed the minimum fact. Um, research, because there just wasn't that evidence, but right. it was totally, the, the, the polls on this that had been taken were constantly, economists totally said this would be the result. And the truth is, today, it's effectively much the same. I spoke uh, researching the book to David Carr and he said, yeah, you know, basically people in labor economics accept that the minimum wage, it doesn't function the way theory says it should. But, you know, if you go outside that, I'm not sure that most people change their opinion. And indeed, if you look at the response to the potential of a $15 minimum wage in the United States, most economists said, yeah, you know, this is probably going to kill jobs. And you're thinking, how can you just say that off the top of your mind? where is that coming from? And that's, to me, was a really shocking thing. You're looking at the flippancy with which economists seem to not not that be interested in facts very frequently.
0: Yeah, but there's a whole bunch of lies that make up what we think of as, you know, the sort of neoliberal framework or trickle down economics or market fundamentalism, whatever you want to call this framework of thought. And you've identified what you call,
1: I think, basically eight big mistakes. Can you quickly take us through what those eight are? In the book, I look at 80 economic ideas that are widely accepted around the world. Um, I chose them, some of them, because I, these are ideas that I'd come up against in my day-to-day reporting life, but all of them were chosen because they were important and they were applied by governments around the world, had been for, for decades now and impacted many people's lives. The first one was a really big idea that influences people, and that is that the idea that bigger governments sap growth, that countries that where the governments government spending to GDP or taxation levels to GDP are higher will grow more slowly than ones with lower levels of growth. This is something that people just accept around the world, and it influences governments. The interesting thing about it, it's it's just despite the fact that people believe that there's evidence, there's not. I indeed, it was really interesting to talk to people who who genuinely believe this to be true. They're economists. And, and oftentimes, they would have proven this thought out of examining models. Um, but of course, then when you try and get the, the data, they found themselves frequently confounded on that. That was one that... Uh, that was particularly interesting. It you know it took me, I've, you know, travelled to the United States and, and around Europe to examine places where this had been, people had had put this in, into into effect, um, with uh, not great deal, deals of success. One would add, another idea I looked at was when I talk about you know, the Felstein revelation, and that focuses a little bit more granularly on the on the concept of taxation and looking really at at how taxation in, might impact growth, and this idea. Uh, that high taxes discourage us from working, and one of the big arguments with respect to tax cuts is if you cut taxation, that people will work harder. You may, if you're lucky, get the Laffer curve impact uh, whereby you actually cut taxes and increase revenues, but the main point is that people observably work harder. This is continually offered it as an excuse or a justification for cutting taxes around the world. And of course, everybody likes it because, you know, I said the book is called Free Lunch Thinking, and hey, doesn't it sound like a free lunch? You cut taxes, people end up feeling less pain, but they, they also uh, end up richer. So it's a classic free lunch. The problem is there's been huge amounts of studies at this. Really going back, I mean, the first ones i found, you know, were, were from the early twentieth century, literally, you know the, the first decade of the of the twentieth century. But in the post-war period, we started to get a lot of data gathered on this and a lot of survey data and other data. And really, there's just no evidence in any way of of that this this is something that had had happened. And indeed, the way the only way that idea could be sustained was a massive shifting of the ideas to how you measure working hard. and this, is why I focus on that particular chapter looking at, at Felstein, because Marty Felstein came up with this idea that oh you know the reason that we don't see tax cuts making people work harder is because we were looking at the wrong thing we're looking at work hours or employment levels you should be looking at how hard wealthy people are working and if you looked at that the way to judge it is if they're earning more money they're they're working harder <laughs> I mean, it's totally such a such a tautology. I mean, you just can't be wrong. You're richer because you're richer. I mean, you know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's circular <laughs> logic. But that that was massively. He did, he did work on this in the early 1990s, and it was massively influential. Um, he got a great data set um, from the IRS. Well, look, it all fits together, right? Because price equals value.
0: So if you're generating more. Income that has to be because you're generating more value. If you definition.
1: define income as value, yeah, you're, you're in that. Yeah. You're in that yeah. look. well, <laughs> neoclassical economics does. Yeah. It is something that uh that, that again, you know, when feldstein came up with the, this information, people with this claim, and it, it comes down to this idea of elasticity. You know, underpinning the idea that uh, the tax cuts make people work harder is this idea that that people have this that their elasticity. Their taxable income elasticity lends them to sort of work harder. And that this elasticity is something that's very high. It's a high number. So there's huge leverage, huge responsiveness. You know, it goes back to what we were talking er- earlier about, you know, this idea about demand and supply curves. To me, economics, it reminds me of the of a rev- review I once heard of the band Oasis. And somebody said, you know, Oasis are they're both good and original. The problem is what's good is not original, and what is original is no good. Economics does that a lot. They take something like a concept of price sensitivity. You know, everybody knew about price sensitivity since we had money. I mean, that wasn't an an idea that Adam Smith or anybody else came up with. What economists like Alfred Marshall brought to the table was this concept of elasticity, that we could measure that responsiveness, that it was stable and predictable, and therefore we could make policies that would use that elasticity to kind of influence human behavior. The problem with it is nonsense. And every time you try and map it, you know, if elasticity exists, it changes so quickly that it's useless as a tool.
2: Elasticity actually runs through a lot of your points. So your next one uh, I'm reading from your chapter outline is, uh, you call the hire and fire debate. You ask, is job security economically damaging? That's an argument that's been, was made a lot about like uh, economies, like the French economy which provided a a lot of job security.
1: Absolutely. And it was something that really drew a distinction between North America and Europe. And Europe had pursued this model really, you know, it depends when you want to go back, but really the the deviation was quite strong from the 1980s or 1970s even even onward. And you saw this this situation whereby it became, the, the European countries gave workers job security in a way that the United States didn't. The, the reason for that was in many ways a sort of economic, this economic theory that if you were to, you know, clog up the wheels of the labor market with these kinds of restrictions, you would make the labor market less efficient and a less efficient labor market meant unemployment. And so that was the, the economic theory to that. Um, and Europe was quite resistant of that. And that was really just politically and politically also a bit from country to country, so more right of center country like the United Kingdom, conservative governments there had eroded some of these, these, these job securities um, compared to mainland Europe. But it was a different differentiator between, as say, North America and, and Europe. What was really interesting was around the time of the financial crisis, and um, you saw and this is why, you know, this, this is not just some theory. This is, this is something in the recent past, you know, countries found themselves in a real hole economically. They didn't have any money to, to kind of get the economy going, uh, to start up labor retraining programs. They had the idea, oh, we'll listen to the economists. They say, we, if we cut employment protection in places like Spain, Italy, et cetera, then we would create more jobs, that the labor market would solve this. So they went and they did that. There were significant changes. And... Uh, Of course, what happened was going also entirely predictable, because as it happens, the subject had been studied for decades before this. And for decades before, they had not managed to find any evidence linked between employment levels and uh, and, and job security, either its existence or changes in, in that. Um, So, predictably, unsurprisingly, then, the Spanish and the Italian and other governments had the exact same experience as before. So, they'd they'd gone through this process, they had removed all these these protections people had, made people feel less comfortable, but they hadn't got the payoff that they'd hoped for. And in the case of Italy, you know, I, I make the point that that's just not, that's not just a political-economic argument, in a theoretical level. I mean, if you even do take a view and you support it, you know, neo-liberal economics or, you know, neoclassical economics, whatever, you, you you still look at a situation whereby the government of Italy changed and the leadership that sought to make these changes and make a lot of market-friendly changes in Italy got thrown out effectively because of their pursuit of that one policy that they had prioritized over so many other things, anti-corruption measures, uh, the change of the bicameral system, I a mean, number of political changes that might have made Italy a more efficient economy. They focused on that one because economists told it was most important. Economists to- thought it was most important because when they looked at Italy, this was the thing that struck them as most deviant from economic orthodoxy. So it jumped out to them. But what was interesting is that when businesses, international businesses spoke out about Italy and what was wrong with it, that wasn't the thing that they focused on. So if you look at it from a kind of person who looks at, well, what's happening on the ground in in the economy in Italy, you wouldn't have come to the conclusion that uh, employment regulation is the problem there. You might've looked at a whole bunch of other things, the fact that the commercial courts don't work, for example. This is, and I think one of the things with the book, it's it's not about a left versus right debate necessarily on this. Uh, you have a situation where many of these ideas are subscribed to both by obviously economists of the Chicago school, but also people more on the liberal side like La- Larry Summers uh, and others. So, right. but but that you know there are opportunity costs to 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 pursuing these. Even if it's not a case, oh they don't work. Well, there's 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 no downside. Uh, th- th- there certainly is. What's another top, you know, sort of economic
0: theory that you think led us well, in the wrong way?
1: I think one of the one of the other things that that I looked at was this idea about uh, can money make you a better manager? I've written a lot about executive pay over the years, and I think it's been a subject that really has illustrated some of the failings of the economy for ordinary people over the past sort of 20, 30 years. What I mean is that average incomes have pretty much stagnated in real terms, but the pay for the people at the peak of the, uh, the, the corporate uh, pyramid has just exploded. And if you look back and what's driving that, what I really discern was coming back to the early 1980s when executive pay, when this sort of bubble started. Because if you looked from around about 1940 to 1980, executive pay hadn't really gone up, it had, I mean it had gone up in real terms, but only to the extent that average pay had done. But from then on things changed and what's really interesting is and you can see this is a lot of it comes down to a single idea, which is this idea that basically executive remuneration was broken, particularly in, in, in America and the fact that people did not have managers did not have incentives to encourage them. To grow the share price, grow profits, et cetera, explained what was at that time apparently at some levels a poor uh, commercial or corporate performance in America. Uh, so the idea was that if you could take, uh, you know, th- the idea was this agency theory, as it's called, that if you could uh, take managers and make them think like uh, investors, shareholders, that then they for- w- would represent more effectively the interests of said shareholders. But, you know, one of the issues was it was a problem that didn't really exist You had people like uh, Jensen, who uh, Mike Jensen, who, was, you know, came up with this this theory and took it forward and, and investors loved it. it. It really just took off. Um, but, you know, there, were, there wasn't actually a, there, were, there was a there was a stock market problem in the 1970s, that's for sure, that uh, the share prices languished. Now, what's interesting was that earnings didn't language. You know, the, the main problem with the stock market in the 1970s was that PE earnings compressed. And it, this is interesting if you look at the Schiller data on that, um, and this is the sort of basis of Schiller's Nobel Prize, to show that markets are not rational. The problem was these people believed that, that they were these are the freshwater people, some of them ex-Chicago people, a lot of them based around the University of Rochester. But they believed, of course, that, that markets were always sending a, a signal that was accurate. And if the share price was low, it must mean that management were terrible. So they just decided that. And you know, I think if you looked at it from an operational perspective, very difficult to, to sustain that. And the fact was you'd had this wonderful period in American corporate growth from the 1945 to 1970 period, over which you know, executive pay had not been tied to share prices as they were later on. But you know we had this explosion in pay largely because we had these share price uh, programs which were introduced in the late 1980s and, and just took off enormously in the 1990s. And the irony of this that in Rochester, you know, where the university had been the biggest exponents of this idea, their hometown was home to two of the best examples of the failure of their own theory, specifically Kodak and Xerox. Places where you know they had. Double down enormously on, on, on paying executives to try and turn around the company. But of course, in both cases, they really illustrated this point that no matter how much you pay somebody, you can't make them a better manager. You can't make them have better ideas. These are people who are not working, they're not slumping off um, before you gave them the share options. They're not coming up with better ideas after.
2: It's a weird, it's a weird idea because it assumes that these people Became these managers without having dedicated themselves to doing a good job. Yeah. Somehow, <laughs> there's there's no reason why they're running the companies. Yeah. They they, they yeah. sucked all along. Why why were they promoted?
0: Yeah. Um, but uh, but all of this, of course, is inextricably intertwined with the idea of shareholder value maximization. Th- this was the sort of win behind those sales. Is the the idea that the best thing for the economy was for managers to maximize shareholder value. And if you did, it would be good for everyone, right? You need that idea in place for any of this to make any sense. And of course, it's just simply not true. Um, The managers didn't get better, but they may have made a bunch of different choices to increase profits, uh, usually at the expense of workers. Short-term profits, because now
2: they're thinking, you make them shareholders, they're going to start thinking like shareholders. Right. What what matters is the quarterly report.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Let's skip number five, chapter five, which is the minimum wage, because that's like bread and butter in this show. (laughs) And our audience knows all about it. I think the next one on your list is really fascinating and will surprise people. You you title the chapter, The Russell Graph. Do syntaxes work? Are you telling me syntaxes don't work?
1: They very frequently don't work the way in which the people who, the main exponents are, of them claim they do. And one of the real key examples in the Russell graph is one of these that I look at is smoking. And as I said, you know, a lot of the ideas that I'm attacking are okay. Some of them are tend to be ones which are espoused more by conservatives than liberals but I, it is the case that these ideas are generally supported by by people of, of both sides, or economists of both sides. This is one of those ideas that probably you know, a lot of liberals might be surprised about, but I'm, this is something because it's an idea that a lot of liberals subscribe to. The problem is that, that a lot of syntaxes don't actually work in the way, or don't work at all, or don't work in the way that, that we think they do. As I said, smoking is one I look at, and this is one where the whole approach of government to tackling smoking was sort of, you know, they're taken hostage by, by economics. And people took the view that we could use tobacco taxes to tackle smoking. And then over time, that, that idea that that was successful really took hold because what people saw was, look, we've brought in tobacco taxes and people are smoking less. I mean, that looks like success. And the problem with that was that when you looked at it more closely, uh, that really wasn't well correlated. And the second problem with that is if it's not correlated and one's not driving the other, then maybe are we doing the right thing or we we maybe missing a trick? And what I mean by that is that when the tobacco taxes were increased the most, uh, not, didn't weren't necessarily the time that, that smoking dropped the fastest. And the reality is when we saw other measures coming into play, like, for example, denormalization, smoking bans, and other things, which politically can be difficult because they're more journalistic, but we saw smoking drop more effectively. But the real damage for the concept as to whether economic theory is applicable in these things is the way in which the human behavior so totally confounds what the economic logic proposes. Smoking taxes should impact people who have the greatest economic incentive to respond to them. So if it's a fixed amount in a packet of cigarette, less well-off people should curtail their smoking much more quickly than affluent people. But what we see again and again in every country is the inverse. So basically, you've got a situation where, and I was researching the book, I was coming from a a borough here in London where 10% of people, less than 10% of the people smoke. I visited uh, Brand's home, in a whole in the north of the country, where 50% of people smoke. The, the, the reality is that the, the smoking, could, you know, typically income based on typical incomes up there, could be as much as 20% of av- average incomes. Whereas here, it's just, you know, in, in, in London, in the borough I was looking at, it, w- it was negligible, it was a low single digits. But, you know, economic theory clearly wasn't working there. Now, economists come common, as they typically do, will try and ad hoc it with some other ancillary explanation. but but, but here's the thing the one thing you know the price is not working as a disincentive in brand's home and if you're involved in health policy i think you do have something to answer for there and we saw situations here in the you know you know over the last 10 years where governments cut back tobacco reduction programs with you you know spending money to help people quit while bumping up taxes at above um you know, real inflation, you know, inflation levels. You know, and as I say, you know, in the UK, for example, it was the 1990s before adver- full advertising ban on tobacco came in. You know, we're incredibly slow here to, 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 to place restrictions on smoking. Again, you know, when it comes to the environment, we've seen situations where economists just can't get their head off tobacco, or sorry, get off, uh, carbon taxes. You know, we saw situations in the United States. Uh, in the in the run-up you know from 2000 to about 2009 oil prices shot up enormously but really we didn't see a huge change in the in the purchasing patterns of cars for all the headlines about prior people queuing up to buy the price the reality was the f-series truck was still the best selling meanwhile in in the in the european union you had a massive increase in uh, automotive efficiency even though because of the high taxes that are already in place the percentage increase was was low so there was little financial incentive for europeans to get more fuel efficient cars a massive uh, financial incentive for americans to get more fuel efficient cars who got the more fuel efficient cars because it was the europeans because of regulation the economists don't okay, like well, regulation right,
2: yeah that brings us to your next your next chapter the pigou coast disagreement, does regulation harm economic growth? So all these regulations, like those smoking bans, uh, <laughs> that's that's bad for growth,
1: right? Well, any kind of, the <laughs> idea is, you know, the idea is that any kind of regulation kind of straight puts puts uh, business in a straitjacket, jacket consumers. It, it's sort of like putting cotton wool between two beating drums and it stops everything working. Uh, there's a famous uh, series that Milton Friedman produced in the I think it was the 70s. And one of his, his programs, he walks through the Library of Congress and the stacks of governmental regulations every year, and he sees them go up and up. And he was saying, this is a sign of the way in which government is really just messing up the economy and getting the way of normal commerce. I looked at there recently at the, the rules of, of, of football, soccer, as you call it in the United States. And when that first be was formalized, there were 13 rules, it took about two pages. The current FIFA international rule book is over 200 pages. Now, nobody is saying that soccer has gotten worse. The the existence of more rules hasn't damaged football. It seems to be a hell of a lot more popular than it ever was, and and most people would agree the quality is better. And I think it's the same is true of regulations that govern interbank transactions. You know The existence of regulation facilitate transactions. They... Uh, it might be frustrating to us at times because yes, they have costs, but they also have a big payoff. Perhaps with the
0: notable exception of syntaxes, all the rest of these economic propositions seem to magically advantage the rich and powerful.
2: Right right, especially the one we didn't we didn't touch on the last chapter which asked the question are taxes on businesses damaging? That's right.
0: the
1: answer is no. Yeah, and and they don't, the key one is they don't discourage investment, which, of course, the main reason for giving these to people. No, in fact, they probably
0: encourage, high taxes encourage investment because it's how you hide profits. What's fascinating to me, and I'd love for you to address this, is that you can call these mistakes or whatever it is, but what's really interesting is that they all tilt one way. Why is it that every single one of these mistakes advantages the rich and the powerful? How did
1: that come to be? It's a really interesting question. I think you know what we see time and again underpinning, particularly tax policies, um, but I think it's also true of, of the regulatory policies, is a fear on the part of policymakers of the wealthy. I think that there's a perception That on the part of certain policymakers, maybe because they've not been involved in business, I don't know why, but they see sometimes this concept of wealth creators. And they seem to willingly attach the, the moniker of wealth creator to an incredibly small number of people, senior executives, entrepreneurs, and then develop a certain terror that these people may take their wonderful wealth generation, wealth creating skills elsewhere. Or just stop working. And therefore, we would all be poor. Uh, It seems to be, when you say that like that, it seems like a ridiculous idea. But time and again, we see it. Here in the UK, the ludicrous tax advantages that exist for people who are given non-dom status, for example, basically allows you to keep your money offshore and not get taxed on it. I mean, entirely is defended on the basis of this idea of wealth creators coming and and spreading their... And munificence and, and 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 wonderful abilities and of, of enriching others around them uh, with everyone it's a really strange one but i think that there is a a, a general fear there i mean obviously okay also- but i understand policy that's politics that's where the that's where the that's where the power
0: lies and where the um where the where the campaign contributions come from i get that what i'm what i'm asking is why these were not mistakes by policy makers these were mistakes by by economists, who surely are not influenced in the same way, aren't under the same pressure.
1: And yet, here we are. I, th- I think there are two problems. I think I think the first one is, is where economists can actually be subject to the influence of wealthy people, which is that if you want to raise money for research, if you want to raise money for your department, and frankly, many de- <laughs> economic departments do, to have To expand the theories which are acceptable to people who have got the money um, is going to help you more. And I think that if if you have a department that's associated with ideas that are not appealing to hedge fund managers, uh, business people, et cetera, you might struggle to get money. That's that's a real thing. I think there is also, though, another issue, and this is the self-interest of economists. And we were speaking earlier to this idea about models. And models are really helpful for making economists relevant because there's a beauty yes. for models. What it allows you to do, it just provides you with a, a multi-tool. The, whatever the situation is, you bring in an economist, he always knows what to do about it because he yeah. knows or she knows and unfortunately maybe, you know, too, no, the, problem is, the, is the problem is. it's he. It's he, is I think the problem, because interesting, I think some of the economists I, I refer to as maybe showing a different way I would say are disproportionately women, but anyway. Um, but so the Economist comes along, and they always have an answer for that. And now, the the interesting thing about that, and where the economists really showed themselves their weakness in this, is you know Alan Krueger, you know, as we spoke mentioned earlier on the, the of fa- minimum wage fame, who was an advisor to President Obama, said models can be really useful in situations whereby you don't have a lot of data, or don't have any data, uh, and you and you need to make a so give some some of the advice in, in the short term, in, in the immediate situation, and you can cite models can help you with that. The problem with so many of these economic truisms, particularly the eight that I deal with in the book, we have decades of data. You can't actually argue that the dominant uh, truism is supported by information because there's so much, in fact, to the contrary that shows the opposite. Right. But people still advance them, yeah. so why are they doing it? And the reason is because it makes them relevant. If you look at the, the economics, which is increasingly, fortunately, being recognized, it, where you have people like Esther Duflo, um and people looking at randomized trials, they're really good at providing answers to problems, but they're very narrow answers. These aren't the kinds of things that help people get hired as a governmental advisor on climate change or these other big roles that economists clearly want to be involved in helping fill. And uh, economists are made relevant by being able, able to offer answers to problems. And 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 the toolkit allows that. So this these these old truisms, the idea that that the price sensitivity can be measured, it's constant, and we can predict people's behaviour. That helps keep people in jobs, so I think that's a big yeah um, corruption and in gives the part them of so, and gives them status. So, yeah. so,
2: so Tom, you call your book "Free Lunch Thinking," and and I'm wondering uh, how much of the success of this orthodoxy and its staying power comes from uh, that story being so appealing because everybody wants a free lunch. Um, it's it's really nice that you know you can there's no sacrifice involved. We can, if we cut taxes, it'll actually increase tax revenue. That's a story we we wish it worked that way. And whereas the other side has a much more complicated and uh, not as uh, likable theory.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, the world is incredibly messy. And if you look at the idea of, of value creation in the world, it's incredibly complicated. Just to look at, you know, price and quantity and to think that this is a simple machine where you bring in a, you know, a few different uh, uh, units of production and, and, and you know, you know, magic it out as a, in a, in a, like it's a some machine. It's not like that. It's incredibly complicated and growth in particular depends on ideas and how do you get people to work more efficiently. And, and these things, and how do you get an economy to work more efficiently? And that probably will involve some regulations over time. And they're, they're messy answers. Whereas if someone says, as Milton Friedman did, and uh, you know, obviously there's a cue here to, to his book title, there's no such thing as a free lunch, because what the reality is you're looking at Friedman's economics. And what he's saying, there is a free lunch. Just get out of the way. Don't, just don't bother trying to solve these problems. Leave it all to the market. And now everything will be magically easy. Looks to me like a a free lunch.
2: Yeah. So, Tom, I'm going to challenge you with another piece of orthodoxy for you to be skeptical about, and that is whether efficiency should even be our primary goal. I mean, we toss out that word efficiency like it's the be all and end all. And I think that uh, in the uh, COVID pandemic and the supply chain crises we've seen during it, uh, we created a very efficient supply chain that uh, ended up, uh, you know, grinding to a halt uh, when it got really stressed. So, you know, I I think we've overemphasized the benefits of efficiency.
0: Well, quoting from my favorite movie, I don't think that word means what you think it does. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It is in economic parlance, the end all be all, but it doesn't mean what they think it means. And efficiency isn't a measure of increasing human welfare. What it usually means is, are corporate profits going up or not? That's it, that's what it means.
1: No, I mean, it's like the term product, (laughs) I agree, I mean, the term the way which economists measure productivity is often very circular. Ridiculous, Um, yeah. But it's, I mean, I think at the end of the day, we want to live better quality lives. I mean, sitting here in Europe, that will frequently involve a lot more holidays. Um, That's one one of the things I look at in the book. So, you know, welfare is really important. And I think, you know, the irony is with a lot of these ideas that people will say this is about, you know, making us wealthier. And even if you you know think that's the most important thing, these things don't help you get wealthier. So I don't think they're defensible no matter what you say the objective is. Do you think there's hope for change? I think that, that one of the big problems for economics is the incentives are against economists starting to say, hey, it's a lot more complicated. I'm not even sure I know what that course is gonna look like. Uh, so I think that, 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 that economists, are they gonna start teaching a fundamentally different economics to students? Are they gonna start giving uh, policymakers fundamentally different ideas? I think the problem is if you look at policymaking over the past several years, Boris Johnson has been talking about the Laffer curve. Obviously, you know Donald Trump gave Laffer the you know the the, the presidential medal of freedom. You know, so the whole thing is that I, I think that it's it's difficult to be to be overly optimistic about the future. I think that there'll be lots of great economics, but I'm not sure how actually influential it'll be.
0: Yeah, well, it's going to take a lot of work to tear all this nonsense down. That's for sure. So, one final question: Why do you do
1: this work? I do this work because i'm I'm really fascinated by how the how the world works. I'm also really fascinated with the way in which that we can believe things which are not true. I guess as a journalist a investigative journalist uh, excuse me you're always really trying to to illustrate that and to to look at these issues that are important and show people how we might live better lives and more just lives um then that if you know we just just understand what what the actual facts of the situation are uh, because in many cases this particular case for example we see that people end up behaving in a way that's contrary to their own interests and even if you agree with the objective you'll see that this particular course of action is unlikely to get you there any quicker or likely to be less quickly than the alternative Well, Tom, thank you so much. Really appreciate you having me on and appreciate your interest in the book. You bet. Best of luck with it. Thanks very much, Nick. Thanks, Goldie.
2: So Nick, I think a lot of our listeners will find the eight areas that Tom talked about familiar, because we have talked about these to various extents over the course of the podcast. And, you know, early on in the podcast, one of the the main heuristics we started with was bad theory leads to bad policy and bad policy leads to bad outcomes. And what I find fascinating about Tom's work, his book, his research is that to me, it's kind of like fact-checking. We started with the theory and said, hey, look, if you've got bad theory, you're going to get bad policy. And Tom started covering the outcomes and the yeah. policy and started questioning well how did we get to this thing which doesn't really work yeah. and worked backwards to the theory
0: right so he <laughs> ended came up at, at the it, same place we did and he
2: came out yeah. in the exact came to the yeah. exact same conclusions that we started from so i i view this as confirmation of course i expected somebody to find that the world works this way But the fact that he didn't start from the theory, he started from the outcomes and worked backwards and found it, uh, that tells you that uh, something we know, we're on the right track.
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, Yeah, it's a a lovely book and um, a great primer on what went wrong with economics over the last 40 or 50 years and why people need to push back against this orthodoxy.